Hi listeners, Mayan here. Before we start, I wanted to let you all know that today we'll be discussing a sensitive topic. Today we'll be talking about cancer, as this is something that has touched my life very deeply, as it has for my two guests today. None of us on the podcast are trained medical professionals, and what we talk about is purely based on our own experience. So if you have anything that's concerning you about your health, please speak to a medical professional. We'll also link some resources in the show notes as well. Thank you for listening. Welcome to But Where Are You From, a podcast by Be Seen, Britain's East and Southeast Asian Network. I am your host, Mayanne, and with me today are my two guests, Be Seen gals, Viv and Charlie. Before we get started on today's topic, could you please introduce yourselves and tell me one joyful thing that you're going to do this summer, starting with you, Charlie. Oh, hi everyone, I'm Charlie. I am one six of Be Seen um, and one of the co-founders. And one joyful thing I am looking forward to doing this summer, and I feel like Viv, well, hopefully Viv's answer would be the same, so she can't use this, but he's going on hmm. retreat with the Be Seen gals. Damn it, so. Charlie. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Thanks for putting me in first, my aunt. So the Be Seen gals will all be in a room together, COVID permitting, touch wood we pretty much hope that will happen um in August well at the very end of July actually so I'm really looking forward to that because um a lot of us haven't actually met yet it's gonna be so good oh so exciting <laughs> Viv you're not allowed to use the same answer damn you <laughs> over um, to you Viv hi I'm Viv Viv Yao um I am also part of Be Seen and I am looking forward to I can't if I can't say be treat then I'm looking forward to spending some time with my boyfriend so I want to just go somewhere um with him whether that's in the UK probably in the UK somewhere I'm looking forward to that very much and just spending some more time with him lovely (laughs) that's cute so Today we're going to be talking about a pretty serious topic and one that's had a really significant impact on all of us. Um, Before we get started, I want to just make clear that this is a really safe space. We have no idea how it's going to go. We could all be laughing uh, in 20 minutes time or we could all be in tears. We came prepared with tissues, all of us. (laughs) Um, So if anybody needs to tap out at any time, um, just, you know, turn your camera off, mute yourself, wave, use the safe word. We don't have a safe word. I'll pick a safe (laughs) word. Safe word can be tampons. Tampons? I was going to say coriander. (laughs) I was going to say noodles. Coriander's not safe for you, Charlie. No, exactly. That's like, that's my like... Okay. I need to leave word. Okay, okay. Should we change it to coriander then? <laughs> coriander. Okay. Charlie's coriander. got bog roll as well, which I've is like the roll. worst. How are you going to cry with bog roll though? Like it's just the worst thing when you've got like a snotty face and it just My disintegrates, is isn't it? To cry. <laughs> like as opposed to actual like Kleenex, like for the for the face paper. Oh, I don't buy tissues. Don't. My mom gave my mom gives me these. That's why I've got them. Yeah. Well, that's a very mum thing to have like boxes yeah. of tissues everywhere. Yeah. Yes, it is. It is. Um, but bug roll will do. Bug roll will do. Yeah. Okay. So we've all got our bug roll. We all know what the safe word is. 
I will be speaking to Viv and Charlie today about their experiences with cancer. So for background, my dad was diagnosed with terminal esophageal cancer in November 2016, and he passed away in July 2017 when I was 28. Um, so that was a very, very quick decline. We lost him within less than nine months. And my family is coming up to his four year anniversary next month. Now, I don't really talk about my dad much to anyone as I haven't quite been ready for it, but hearing you, Charlie and Viv, talk about your experiences has really emboldened me. So today I am here to chat to you both about your experiences with the C word. And the C word isn't cunt because Jamie already broke that. Uh, he was the, I think he became the first person to say, the, say that word on the, on the podcast last week. So you just wanted to be the second. Exactly. <laughs> We are, nothing if not, <laughs> we are nothing if not a competitive couple. <laughs> so, Charlie, I'm going to go to you first. Can you tell us a bit about your experience with cancer? Yeah, so I was one of the very fortunate people in the world that didn't really have that much um, first-hand experience of cancer up until about four years ago. So four years ago, I was 25, loving life, living my best life was in a new job um actually it wasn't even that new I was in a job a good job um kind of thriving in my career and then I found a small lump in my right breast and I went to the doctor about it and I thought it'd be nothing I thought I would just get dismissed I had a couple of friends who'd had things checked out previously they were told you know it was nothing to worry about etc but my doctor referred me to um withinshore nightingale center which is a specialist breast cancer hospital um, just to have it checked out and on the 13th of march 2017 i was told that i had breast cancer um, at the age of 25 so in my head I was the youngest Chinese person in the UK to be diagnosed with breast cancer that year, which I know is not a very good claim to fame, but I'll have it anyway because I'm competitive too. So that's what I tell everyone. <laughs> um, and then after that, I kind of underwent seven months of active treatment. So I had, as part of that, three major surgical procedures, six cycles of chemotherapy, 20, 20 days of radiotherapy, one not great hospital admission um, and lots of injections, tablets, steroids, etc. That's pretty much my main kind of experience of cancer now, um, obviously having been diagnosed myself. Wow. Thank you for sharing mm. that with us. I mean, when you put it all into such a short space of time, it really just it really does sound like a lot. How many days did you say? How many months of active treatment? Um, so seven months of active mm. treatment um, and then obviously I'm still on medication. I have a monthly injection now and I will be for at least another six years. So 10 years in total, I'll be on a kind of hormone treatment. Can I ask a question about the boobs? Of course. Because you know they always say boobs. check your boobs and it's just, yeah. you know it's and I and I do check mine but sometimes I'm like how I am I doing it right I mean you know sometimes you're like is that is that just part of my boob or is it I mean is it really is it quite obvious yeah. when you find a lump 
So there's no right or wrong way to check them to start with. Any kind of way you're feeling them, you don't have to do it. You can get a partner to do it. And what you should be looking out for is anything that is a prolonged change. So obviously, as you're checking, you should be looking for anything abnormal. So as you go through different cycles of your hormones, etc., your boobs can change um, and your breast tissue can change. And we should call it breast tissue because it is also for males. Um, so your breast tissue can change throughout the month. Um, so you should be looking for anything that has changed and then stays that way. So it could be kind of some dimpling, some abnormal discharge, um, any lump um, that doesn't go away. It is quite normal to kind of get um, different densities in your breast tissue as you're um, going through the month. But anything that kind of is noticeable and stays, you should kind of report to your GP so they generally say anything that doesn't go away after two weeks because obviously you've kind of been through a bit of a cycle then but there is no right or wrong way to check your um, breast tissue any kind of way you you want to do it get inventive it's fine (laughs) Um, and yeah just anything that's abnormal for you so you will know personally what is normal for you for me um, it was very obvious when I felt it it felt like a little pebble in my boobs so it was quite hard but that isn't always the case so that's not necessarily something to look out for but for me it did feel obvious you know I could feel it there I had never noticed it before um, and it didn't go away after a few days so I I kind of made an appointment on the day I found found it but the appointment wasn't for like five days and I thought actually it's probably gonna have gone by then and I'll just cancel the appointment but when it hadn't gone um I obviously still went along to the doctor and he also felt it too so he said you know I can feel something there not sure what it is best just to get it looked at further by a specialist so bottom line people with boobs feel yourselves up yeah regularly mm-hmm. yeah yeah my ex-boyfriend actually found a boob that's found a boob found a lump <laughs> <laughs> he found a boob well done boyfriend I mean, took him a while but <laughs> you'd hope you do <laughs> a bit of rummaging um I mean I do I am pretty flat chested so <laughs> that explains it but he he uh, found a lump on my left breast when I was in my early 20s and I was similar to your friends Charlie where I went to the doctors and then it turned out to be a lymph node I think or something which then disappeared um but that was that just reminded me of that time and how like you know going through that procedure and how quick actually the NHS were to refer me to different people and stuff and get me checked out um yeah gotta thank the NHS for that because they're really on it straight away especially with young women yeah I think they have a two-week period where you have to be seen so once you kind of get referred you have to be seen within those two weeks um just in case that's good I didn't know that yeah I didn't know that Viv can you tell us a little bit about your experience Yes, of course. So I have spoken about it ages ago on the podcast with my sisters when it was, I think it was Father's Day. I think we spoke about memories of our dad um, and I have mentioned it briefly. Um, So my experience with cancer is through in proximity to someone who had cancer. Um, My dad was diagnosed when he was in his late 40s. And weirdly enough, I don't remember the name of the cancer. It's one of those things where I continually have to ask my sisters and my mum because I kind of have just like, I guess, suppressed 
that memory so much that I just can't retain what that name is but it's a rare type of cancer um and I found out when I was 16 um after actually he, my dad was working at the takeaway my mum told me uh, I remember my cousins uh, being around at the time as well um and then pretty much straight away my parents went to the US um the first day me and my sister started college and my older sister started university and they went to the US to get treatment because they were referred to a Chinese doctor which I think was a big thing for them in terms of the language and that recommendation from another Chinese person um and so we were kind of left uh, to our own devices pretty much for an entire year where we had to essentially run the household, try to, uh, we had lots of help with the takeaway at the time, thank God, with our family, um, but just like go to school and whatnot and just live a, live a, a normal also life. Um, and I just remember like me and my sister's trying to do the weekly shop and we all dealt with it in very different ways. And like I remember just like we were in the crisps aisle and then my sister was like let's get some crisps and I was like no because crisps cause cancer and like I really went the other way with it in terms of I guess my approach to health and food and like my other sisters were like but we need comfort food (laughs) Um, and it was just a really confusing time Um, and my yeah, he, he came back eventually. There was a time when he he had an operation down in the US, in Boston. It was successful, thank God. Um, and we'd just check in with each other via Skype. Um, and it was just really weird because they were just away for so long. And I kind of shut down for a while. I became a bit like stonewally with it. I almost disassociated myself to a point where I didn't feel anything. I was just numb. Um, and then this carried on for about 10 years. He had cancer on and off for 10 years, went through the rounds of chemo, radiotherapy, injections, steroids, calcium stuff, like everything. Um, he had like so many tablets and everything. I I can't even remember what they were, um, uh, before he passed on at home in October, 2017. So be five years ago. Have I I just counted that right? Four years four years so 2016 he passed away (laughs) um yeah so it'll be five years this year so so that's my experience in a nutshell is through my dad experiencing cancer and passing away from cancer thank you both so much for for sharing that I mean one thing that's just struck me listening to both of you is how young you both were I mean Viv 16 is really really young and 16 and being kind of left to your own devices for a year. I mean, I know you said you had kind of family and support and I'm sure there were people checking in on you and stuff, but it's 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 incredibly young and a really formative time in your life to be not only dealing with the idea that your dad has cancer, but also like you said, to be doing things like a shop and, you know, kind of looking after a household and stuff. Do you feel like you kind of aged or became an adult really quickly (laughs) no no like we did a shit job like the the washing would pile up for weeks and like we hated distributing the chores between the three of us um and and in a way because we were kind of left to our own devices as well there was a almost like a novelty to it and I think that's why I did such a good job of disassociating myself from what was going on because my parents were away from it like it was pretty much like your dad's got cancer we're going away for treatment and like literally I didn't have to see the ins and outs of him getting treatment at the beginning of it so like that that like nine months to a year of him being away it was just like I don't know like 
we were just left to our own devices and like we did go out to Boston a couple of times and then my mum did come back for the business and stuff my dad pretty much stayed out there um so it was I look back at that time as not one of the hardest moments of my life because it genuinely wasn't that hard for me. Uh, I mean, I'm sure my dad would say differently, but for, for us as well, for me personally, it was a shock and everyone around us was like, how are you doing? Are you okay? And we're like, yeah, you know, like the, the hard times definitely came a lot later on. I think as I matured in that 10 years and realized the gravitas of what was going on a lot more, I think I, I think I just approached it with a lot of naivety, thinking it would be over. Um, and then it dragged on for so long. <laughs> yeah. I think the more people that I speak to who've had really direct experiences with cancer, the more you just realize that it's just so different for everybody. Mm. And sometimes doctors will say, you know, normally we would expect you to have X amount of years left, but that can be completely, mm. just completely wrong. And yeah, they told my dad what? that he had, yeah. yeah, they told my dad that they thought he had a couple of years and he was, yeah, he was gone within yeah. nine months. That was a very, very rapid decline, um, mm. which none of us yeah. were particularly ready for. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and Charlie, you were 25. So you were kind of in the, like in the prime of your young adult life. What was that like? How did it affect your life as you knew it? You said that you were working in a job, you were kind of at the beginning of a, a really good career. Can you tell us a bit about how it was for you? Yeah, so, I mean, obviously there's never a good age to have cancer, um, but I, I felt like, um, and maybe this is my biased opinion, but I felt like being 25 was a really difficult age to do it because um if I was 24 I'd have been treated under the teenage cancer trust um but obviously I wasn't I was 25 I'd just turned 25 so I was kind of treated in the general um hospital population so as standard um it's generally and I use that loosely um older people that tend to get um cancer and I do use that very loosely um but obviously what I saw every time I kind of walked into the Christie was people who were a lot older than me. There was kind of no one my age. Um, there was either really young children um, or kind of people who were in the 60s, 70s, that kind of age. So I thought that was really difficult because I, I felt very alone in it. I, I felt like I didn't have anyone to talk to specifically about what I was going through except one friend who was kind of going through a similar well the same thing um so I was quite fortunate to have that um but I think even to the extent where people were shocked that it was me so when I was having treatment I lost all my hair and I wore um scarves because well quite liked it but so I one day when I was going in for um, chemo I walked in had a scarf on um, I was with my mum at the time and they just addressed my mum they were like hi miss what, what are you here for <laughs> she was like stop me it's my daughter <laughs> like wow. the person with the headscarf on you'd think you'd kind of just assume um, but they just thought it must be her because I was kind of not the right age demographic and um, so I think that was really difficult and I did a lot of research kind of around the stats um, and things because that's who I am um, and only kind of 150-ish women under the age of 30 get breast cancer each year in the UK so you know I really was quite alone in kind of that age bracket um, and obviously I even feel like at 
25 and 30, there's quite a big difference. You know, like you say, I was kind of at the start of my career. A lot of people who were a bit older that I kind of found on forums and stuff, they kind of, their issues were kind of, how does this affect my fertility? You know, what what do I tell my children? And I kind of couldn't relate to any of that. I was more, you know, how do I pay my bills if I can't work? How do I um, kind of get by? How do I tell my friends who are all going out, drinking, having fun? You know, how can I relate to any of that when I'm going through cancer? Um, so it was a really challenging age I guess um specifically at that time and I think kind of a lot of it kind of came down to that not seeing anyone like me and I feel like you know my life motto is you know there's not enough representation obviously I wouldn't want anyone to have to be the representation for the face of cancer or anything like that but you know even in kind of the documents they give you I never saw anyone that was like looking like me that might have been east or southeast asian i very rarely saw someone that was as young as me they obviously did try and use younger people but they generally looked you know 35 40 ish because that is classed as very young to have breast cancer um and i just didn't really feel like there was anyone going through a similar thing as me that was in the same position as me so it was quite difficult and especially with being Chinese and I thought that was a kind of an added challenge to the situation so for example when I was having my first chemotherapy you have this kind of hour where you have to wait for all the um, anti-sickness medication to kick in and it was like an opportunity to ask questions I was really kind of bold and I went on my own I guess I don't know the bold's the right word but I went to my first chemo on my own which obviously isn't very common um and she said you know do you have any questions and I was went through the usual things and she said okay well I've got some things that you kind of shouldn't do after your first chemotherapy she reeled off some things and then she said there's some foods you shouldn't eat so you shouldn't eat anything flash fried you shouldn't eat Chinese food and I was like what I am Chinese. How do I not eat Chinese food? <laughs> and she she had just reeled this kind of thing off. But and what she meant is all the food that you eat should be cooked through for thoroughly, um, like you would if you were pregnant um, or anything like that. But because um, in the UK, I don't know whether it's just the UK, but, you know, we associate Chinese food with being flash fried. You know, it might if you had meat it might be a bit pink in the middle you know that kind of thing so that's what she was associating it with but she just said to me you shouldn't eat Chinese food I was like well Jesus that's my like, full stop. yes yeah, literally, just full stop <laughs> yeah. no Chinese food she exactly. wouldn't have said that though I mean like there are plenty of I don't know mainland Europeans like French people for example who yeah. eat very very rare or raw meat she wouldn't have said that to, yeah. to somebody else though it was also as well um to do with takeaways so um mm. she said no takeaways you know no Chinese takeaways and again I don't know whether well I think she just did it clumsily um yeah but it was kind of to do with the level of um hygiene and stuff so she said you can't regulate it in takeaways obviously you don't know what level of hygiene they're adhering to you need to be careful with what you're eating 
and you know those kind of things and to be fair she was she was a fantastic nurse um and you know when I challenged her on it she really backtracked she was very new um I felt a bit bad for her afterwards um which probably I should I probably shouldn't have but you know she was very new and she bet she really backtracked and you know explained what she meant um and kind of clarified what she meant by it but you know at the time I was like you can't just tell me not to eat Chinese food because I am Chinese <laughs> um but you know it is what it is um I did still eat Chinese food obviously um and then kind of the other things in terms of being Chinese and kind of how that kind of impacted I guess my situation so I um think that a lot of characteristics that very very stereotypically Chinese I kind of a lot sorry will you cut that bit because I'm not getting my words out properly (laughs) um okay so Another kind of thing is when I, because I was so young, I was kind of referred to a genealogy clinic. Is that the right word? Kind of looking at your genes and stuff. So we kind of wanted to trace the family history because obviously being so young, they think it might be hereditary, et cetera. So I was sent to a genealogy clinic and they asked for my background about, you know, who in the family has had cancer and you know what kind of cancer it is for my English side I could give them all that information for my Chinese side I asked my dad and he said yeah someone had cancer but I don't know what it was cancer of you know he was like they say it's stomach cancer but it doesn't actually mean it's stomach cancer it could be anything and so I found that really difficult because they kind of didn't have anything to go off and and at a time where I kind of wanted to blame someone else for it and not myself. Um, it was really difficult to not kind of have that information readily available. Um, and in the end, it didn't really matter because they kind of, I kind of went into a study program anyway, and they kind of looked at my genes in comparison to, I think it's 10,000 other people um, and kind of compared it like that instead because I didn't have much background. But it was quite difficult in that sense um, to kind of work out where did all this come from. Would you mind telling us a little bit about um, what it felt like when you were undergoing treatment? You mentioned that you lost your hair. That's a thing that people tend to really want to focus on. Like when I told people that my dad was was gonna undergo treatment for cancer, immediately everyone was like, was he gonna lose his hair? And it's like, oh, is that? the only thing that people want to know about but obviously there yeah. are lots of other side effects if you go through chemo if you go through radiotherapy would you mind telling telling us a little bit about what that was like yeah so for me losing my hair wasn't actually the end of the world I was kind of at a stage of my life where I'd just kind of fallen out of love with my hair I just used to tie it up every day just used to get in the way I never really did anything with it so I wasn't that bothered strangely Um, and I can fully understand why it is a really big thing for a lot of people but for me personally it wasn't that big a deal. Um, I really enjoyed wearing headscarves and I was really fortunate that my sister works for um, a very fancy designer label so I got a lot of very fancy designer label scarves for absolutely no money. so I was really fortunate in that respect um, and I got really creative with the scarves, which I really enjoyed. 
Um, one thing that kind of was really difficult though is chemo can change the color and texture of your hair. So some people might find that their hair comes back gray or a slightly different color. Um, your hair might be straight, whereas previously it was curly or the other way around. For me, previously I had very long, dark, straight hair. I wouldn't say it was exactly black, but it was probably as close to being black hair as you can get without it being black. Um, when it's come back, it's still very dark, but I would say it's lighter than it was. Um, and it's kind of got a slightly lighter gingery look in the light um, which I really really like but it also came back really curly and um, which again I really like I'm I really like my curly hair but I felt like it made me lose a lot of my Chinese identity so mm. I'm mixed heritage and I'm half English half Chinese and I felt like kind of one of my defining Chinese features other than my eyes was my long dark hair and then all of a sudden it was kind of long dark hair, but it was curly um, and it felt very un-Chinese, um, so to speak. And I thought that was really difficult and something that I really came to terms with because I thought people aren't gonna know I'm Chinese. And that was quite a big thing to me. Um, and I kind of moved past it now and I, I really think I can embrace my curly hair and even though it's the right pain to get curly. Um, but it was really difficult at the time. Um, and then other things that kind of you don't really learn about is, and one thing that affects me a lot more than kind of losing my hair was the chemo that I had is really rough on your nails. So it can make your nails, your fingernails and your toenails kind of either really brittle and flake off or like just completely kind of go black and come off. Now, I used to absolutely love doing my nails. Like I always had perfect nails. They were always really nicely painted. So for me, the thought of losing my nails was much more traumatic than losing my hair. So they advised to paint my nails in a really dark color because it, there's some studies, the very loose studies that say that that can help protect them. So I did that and my nails weren't too bad. They, they, I, I didn't lose any nails completely on my hands um, some of them were a bit discolored and they were quite brittle for a long time but um, I did lose some toenails and I could I could deal with that because I only ever wear trainers so no one else saw them other than me <laughs> but yeah that was that was probably um, the most difficult physical side effect for me and I just had to have black nails for seven months which goes with your very emo personality <laughs> exactly <laughs> don't yeah. talk to me <laughs> so how do you think that having cancer at such a young age has changed who you are now because like we said 25 that's like slap bang in the middle of when you're learning who you are as an adult like what kind of impact has that had on your life now that you're a few years down the line I think I take loads less shit now. I know what I do and do not want to do. If I don't want to do something, I will not do it now. Um, <laughs> I cannot be asked at spending my time doing shit that doesn't bring me joy. Um, and I'm quite firm with that in my life. And I'm very grateful for that because I think I was a bit of a, a yes man before and I would just do 
what I thought other people wanted. Um, I kind of didn't want to challenge things too much, I guess. And that job that I was in, I realised after I finished treatment that actually it wasn't bringing me as much joy as I thought it was. I thought it was great beforehand, but, you know, with my new perspective on life, I decided it wasn't what I wanted. Um, and it kind of gave me the courage to leave that job and find something new. I technically, in terms of role, took a demotion um, for a less stressful life because I decided that what was the point in me being stressed all the time? Um, I just wanted kind of an easy life. At the time, I thought, I'll just take an easy life for a year because I was on a fixed-term contract for a year, but two years later, I'm still there. Um, and my life's not easy if my boss is listening to this. <laughs> I don't just <laughs> doss off all the time, I promise. Um, but yeah, I technically took a demotion and learned to only do things that make bring me happiness in life. Um, and I think another really important thing is because of the chemotherapy and the kind of hormone treatments that I'm on, it means that I can't just have babies, you know, for the next at least six years I am not allowed to just get pregnant which mm. really takes off the pressure of getting pregnant you know I'm at an age now where a lot of people generally would be saying so when are you going to settle down and have a baby or you know when am I going to have grandkids no one dares say that to me because I will give them the full story about why I cannot have children right now and you know it's not something that I particularly wanted anyway I don't think but it really took off the pressure to have to think about it you know I don't have to think about my biological clock that's ticking because I can't do anything about it anyway and um, if it happens in six years time when I come off my treatment I decide I do want to go down that avenue then I'll think about it then but for now there's no point in me thinking about it because I can't physically do it even if I was in a relationship and I decided I wanted to now, I would have to consult with my oncologist and I would have very strong um, impact on kind of my treatment that I'm still on. Um, and I think that kind of takes all the fun out of having a baby, you know, if you mm. can't just spontaneously have a, not spontaneously, that's not what I would, don't just spontaneously <laughs> have a baby. But, <laughs> but, you know, if you have to plan it's the point of seeing your oncologist it's kind of not as fun anymore mm. um so to me that's not something I want to pursue at the moment and it's really kind of taken that pressure off me to have to think about it and to have to deal with the questions about it because people don't ask me and rightly mm. so because you should never ask someone when they're going to have a child <laughs> no you really shouldn't yeah. I think it provides such a valuable lesson to people in our, in our like formative years in your formative years, like we are told in our society that in our twenties, we have to climb up the ladder, get that promotion, hustle, um, and live your best life. And actually when you sit back and think about what's really important and like you haven't gone through this experience and realizing that like, actually I want to take a demotion because I just want an easier life because you know, what's important to you and it's not stress and it's not climbing the corporate ladder. And actually that that's an option for all of us. Like we don't have to do that. And I think that's like a really 
great reminder that we, we live in this like capitalist society where we're told to do that. And it's almost not really a choice until we're confronted with something that has a massive impact on our lives. And then you're then having to reevaluate all your life choices. It's not, it's almost like we're sleepwalking through like life, just thinking like, this is how it's meant to be. And then boom, something happens. Yeah, 100%. So Viv, how do you think that your experience with your dad's cancer when you were 16 and and I guess been through till the age of 26, how do you think that that's had an impact on you as the person you are today? I think like now that I'm in my 20s, I, and I think I would have answered this differently whilst after my dad passed away, I think I went through a phase of, I guess, being quite reckless what did I say? Did I say twenties? I fucking wish. <laughs> In my thirties, for fuck's sake. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, being in my when I first when my dad first passed away, I think I had a year or two of being quite reckless, um, and really. Uh, it came out in a lot of different ways. Um, just trying to find different vices, dating a lot of people that I didn't want to date, um, and kind of just it didn't. It wasn't even going off the rails, but it was more so just like fuck it, <laughs> just fuck it. Um, and now I think I've gone past that kind of like you only live once mentality, and and more so how it's embedded is I feel a lot of anxiety with regards to like how like loved ones dying like I, th- I think about that a lot I have to avoid watching and reading and consuming anything that talks about people dying which is pretty difficult to avoid especially when it comes to a parent having cancer because I just can't do it and I think it's like it comes out in very strange ways like I have to google the plot of like um things before I watch them to make sure that there's nothing triggering in them that might upset me like people have recommended to me so many times watch Ricky Gervais's afterlife watch oh it's really good and I'm like it literally talks about a woman like his wife dying of cancer I there's literally no way I can watch that without feeling so triggered um so I think about that a lot and I definitely think that um it's affected my thinking of mortality and how we don't have that long on this planet um and I also think as well like um kind of a more of a positive thing that's come out of it is um questioning my identity and how and why what is my motivation in doing that and there's lots of reasons and I can't pinpoint it to one reason but one that wasn't that obvious to me initially was it was a way of reconnecting with my dad like just being able to like talk about like the hat guy side of my family uh connecting with other people who came from his village um and just finding out more about history um Hong Kong Chinese history um is almost I think in a way that's me holding on to my dad's memory in that way so I definitely think it shaped me to be more invested in history and my history and my dad's history in particular so that's one good thing I think that's come out of it it's not all bad (laughs) I know what you mean about the triggering stuff because sometimes it happens when you just when you're least expecting it something is Mm. just like I was watching a film once, you know, I was doing a movie night with friends and they're like, let's put on this film. The film had nothing directly to do with cancer, but it was just for a personal reason, extremely triggering for me. Mm. And I also don't really like talking about it ever. So I just left the room, <laughs> just mm. left the room and then just stayed out of the room for the whole of the film. And everyone was like, <laughs> what's wrong with my hand? It was just, yeah. And there's like, 
certain songs, just absolute no-nos. I can't watch oh, anything yeah. to do with like daddy-daughter stuff or mm. like daughters losing their fathers, anything like that. And yeah, I have to I have to get other people to kind of vet stuff for me. Yeah. Yeah, they tell you what. Oh. Do you know which song I'm going to say? A Dance with My Father Again by Aletha Vandross. Oh, I never even dance with my dad. Like, it's not even something oh, we God. did together. But, like, when I just hear that song, I'm like, oh, fuck off. No, I don't want to no, hear mine this. Is, um, the, 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 the two songs that we played at my dad's funeral, which my sister and I had to pick. And mm. also there's a song by Sampa that's, it's called um, No One Knows Me Like the Piano. And the whole song mm. is literally about him being away from home when his mum gets diagnosed with cancer and then him not going home to look after her and how guilty he feels about it. And I listen to it and I'm like, this is my life. <laughs> this is literally my life. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. too close to home, that is. Do you mind if I ask both of you how this these experiences impacted the relationships in your lives? Like Viv, for example, how you know, it must have been really difficult for you and your sisters at home for a year without your parents. And then obviously it was this, you know, this thing that was part of your lives for 10 years. And has it impacted your relationship with your mum since your dad's been gone? Yeah, I, I definitely think, um, I mean, it's very difficult, I guess, without going into detail, because we have, I have very individual relationships with each of them and each of them are different for varying reasons but I think generally like with my mom um I guess we almost like infantilize her even though she's very independent she's still obviously living by herself she's only in her 50 she's very young oh no shit she's 60 no she's in a oh fuck um <laughs> she's in her late 50s yeah um and she is extremely just you know, independent or whatever. But like, I think we definitely do worry about her. Like we all have uh, find my friends on iPhone and we every time she goes out somewhere, we always check that she's home. Um, even like sometimes just ask her to call us and stuff like that. Um, and we just want to make sure she's okay. And I think I certainly felt a lot of guilt when it came to like um, me being the last person to leave our family home and move out. And this just happened last year. Um, and being worried that my mom would be left in the house by herself and how she would cope with that. Um, so there's certainly like times when I feel like we need to protect her and almost the role has reversed and we are the parent in that situation. Um, yeah. And when it comes to me and my sisters, um, it, I guess it has definitely shaped our relationships in, in different ways. I think sometimes we need reminders in terms of what's happened and, and like the, I guess the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Just how precious life is because I certainly have had friction with my sisters. And then sometimes you're just like, you know what? Like we've already lost a family member. Imagine if something happens to us and we're arguing about stupid shit that we just don't need to argue about. Um, but it's way more complex than that. So yeah, I think, um, we all just, I guess we all worry about each other, but secretly, like we would never say it and we show it in very strange ways, but we would never explicitly be like, I'm worried about you. Are you okay? It's more like, hi, um, I dropped off food for you. Okay. Bye. I was going to say, here's some food. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How about you, Charlie? How did it impact the, the relationships in your life? Um, I think it's quite an interesting one. I think before 
um, I was diagnosed, I would say I wasn't that close to my parents, really. Um, and then I feel like when you are faced with that kind of situation, you you do end up kind of reverting to your child and parent kind of lives. So I was already kind of living alone by the time I was diagnosed. I had my house. Um, I'm very independent. Um, and I think my mum really wanted to just mother me and my dad did as well. Um, they wanted me to move back home um, to their house and I was like absolutely fucking not um, so what it resulted in is my mum just turning up at my house which used to drive me mad um, it was quite difficult because I couldn't tell her to stop because I understood why she wanted to do it and I understood that she needed to know that I was okay um, and sometimes I just didn't answer the phone which has not changed to be honest sometimes I just don't <laughs> want to talk to people but you know in a time where I was in a very difficult place both physically and mentally she wanted to know I was okay so she would bring me potato cakes <laughs> all the time oh. um, because it was one of the few things I could eat I lived on potato cakes for about a year um, and I, I did find it really difficult kind of her just turning up but I understood it from her point and kind of just let it happen and I do think since um my diagnosis I do think we have more tolerance for each other um I think we have not less fractured because I don't necessarily think we were had a fractured relationship before but um I am much more tolerant of the things that used to annoy me and she's probably much more tolerant of me as well um but in general, I did find that no one really knows how to deal with someone, especially when it's kind of a very out of the blue, unusual situation. No one really knows how to deal with someone who's got cancer. Um, and I think I'm very much, a, I want to deal with it on my own. And people, and I shut people out. And I, I think people thought I was just trying to save face um you know had too much pride and I actually think I just did need to deal with it on my own um but they obviously felt very helpless um at the time and it was quite difficult for them but I think the only person who was really great was my best friend Bex um and she just didn't do anything different so she would meet up she would talk to me about her boyfriend she would complain she would go for food with me and you know we didn't have to talk about cancer if I wanted to talk about cancer she was open to that but she never ever kind of asked prying questions she never did that so how are you you know how was treatment this week she didn't really do that um and that is 100% what I needed um and it's, it's probably partly my fault because I didn't verbalise that to people. But, you know, everyone else kind of did the molly coddling, which was really difficult for me because I did not want that. And I still wouldn't want to be molly coddled. Um, so I think it was just kind of a learning experience for me and everyone around me. Yeah, I think a lot of people with cancer feel like that, like you don't you have cancer. And that's obviously a really huge part of what's going on in your life. It doesn't define you and so sometimes like people look at you and all they see 
is cancer. My dad used to get really, he was very like really insistent on just living his life exactly as it was, refusing to cancel holidays, like refusing to stop working, like all this kind of stuff. And would get really quite defensive when people would be like, oh, oh, you're so brave. Oh, such an inspiration. And I mean, I guess some people might want that, but yeah. I, I mean, I, I obviously have no idea how it feels, but I can just imagine that would be really infuriating to just be defined by your cancer and has it have it painted as this like really amazing inspirational thing all the time. Yeah. I think that's what that's kind of the difficulty of it because I think everyone is so individual and what will work for one person you know won't work for another pe- a person I do know people who did move home and did need that kind of unrelenting love and being looked after basically mm-hmm. so um it's really difficult to kind of gauge what people would want but I would say if in doubt just ask them um mm, yeah and have that conversation when they are in a reasonably good space or as good a space as they can be have that conversation mm. what do you need do you need me to bring you food and then just leave do you need me yeah. to talk about it do you not want to talk about it um, and kind of having those open discussions um I think is really helpful to yeah. everyone basically mm. yeah. yeah I think sending food is always a great idea yeah. like I remember when <laughs> um when I I was actually on I was actually on holiday in Ecuador when my dad died and there'd been this whole like discussion about whether I should go whether I should not go and in the end he was like you have to go if you don't go then I'll be really mad at you and then obviously I went and just sod's law um Mm. but when I got back to the UK I was in the UK for a few weeks and I got really 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 sick I think my body just had a, a really big reaction they thought it was malaria they couldn't figure out what was wrong with me and it turned out there was nothing with me um but one of my friends without kind of you know doing the whole oh are you okay and just constantly kind of asking me if I was okay she just sent me a massive basket of chocolate coffee food just like everything <laughs> comfort like that I would That's need so for nice. but without making a big deal out of it she <laughs> sent me some food um <laughs> which was the best thing because there are for yeah. me, there were so many ways that just weren't good <laughs> and then I had another person who I went to high school with literally hadn't seen her for like donkey's years and um she messaged me out of the blue saying oh I heard about your dad uh, I can't remember because I didn't I didn't like publicize it anywhere it must have been through someone who told someone who told someone else anyway she messaged me and she was like, I know how, how it feels to have someone that close to you leave your life, blah, blah, blah. It happened to me. And she went on and on about her experience. And I was like, okay, cool. That's terrible for you. And then it turned out that she was talking about her dog. Fuck's sake. For, for, I knew it was going to be a fucking pet. And like, I'm sorry. Like, yes, it's very sad when a fucking pet dies. It was like, it was, it was like, it was so bad that it was funny. I wasn't even upset by it. I mean, she's a twat anyway, so I wasn't, you know, there's no (laughs) love lost between us, but I was like, I knew it was coming. I was like, oh God, oh God, oh God. (laughs) I mean, I thought it was going to be like, I don't know, a long lost cousin or something. I didn't think it would be an animal. (laughs) Animal. Yeah. Do you know what? Yeah. There's not, that's not literally like 
to degrade anyone's experiences with the night, but it's not the fucking same, is it? It's like not, uh, we had that as well. It's not the same. It's really and not I the say same that as a, as a massive, parent dying. Massive, massive animal lover. It's not the same. Apart from cats. Yeah. Do you know what? With the with the food thing, actually, I remember me and my sisters laughing because we were like, uh, we heard that like people drop off food and we didn't get that much food, you know, and we were pissed off. We were like, I thought this was one of the perks of someone in your family dying is people drop off loads of food. But we barely got anything. I got flowers and I was like, what the fuck are we meant to do? Just find loads of vases for these flowers now. And I found that really annoying. I was like, send me fucking food instead. I didn't get that much kind of. Well, actually, people made me food that I had to go round to their house to eat, which I was like, oh, that's going annoying. Oh, no. to go to your house. No. But my dad, um, chemo really affects your taste buds, so I couldn't taste a lot of things. So one of the few things that I could really taste was pineapple because it's so sharp. Um, so every single time that I went to my dad's, he would cut up an entire pineapple for me and just present <laughs> it to me on the plate. Um, and there was another time that... I can't remember why, but we were eating like a roast dinner, um, which is not very normal for my family. So I don't know why we were having it that day. But I was like, I do not want to eat that. I was like, I just want a plate of carrots. And my mum just gave me this massive plate of mashed carrots (laughs) because my mouth was really sore. And I just wanted to eat like slop, if you know what I mean. Um, She just gave me this massive plate of mashed carrots. And I really remember that. (laughs) And there was some left in the pan. In the end, I was just eating it out of the pan. And oh. usually she would not have that. Like, it'd be like, put it on the plate. But she just <laughs> let me eat it out of the pan. <laughs> Do you think that her constant delivery of potato cakes is why you seem to exist on like a 50% diet of potato waffles now? Um, potato cakes still make up a large proportion of my diet. Um I'd say I eat potato cakes pretty much every day for breakfast. Oh um, my god, do you? Yeah. <laughs> what do you have with them? Like just what's butter. On them? Yes. Oh god, I need um, some but yeah, I do. I do like potato products, um, and they they weren't just any potato cakes. They were these really nice, expensive potato cakes from a bakery near her work. So that's why she specifically used to deliver these ones, and I still really like them to this day. <laughs> All hail so, potato products. <laughs> so to wrap up with our last question I was wondering if either of you had anything to say to anybody who might be going through similar experiences Charlie what do you reckon um I mean in terms of the practical paint your nails black um, and that's a pretty big one for me um if you're going to have chemo get some ginger biscuits in uh ginger is very good with kind of the anti-nausea properties um, and also just eating small bits like biscuits is really good um, to kind of help with the sickness etc um, and then my only other kind of major thing I guess is for more fat afterwards I think you're very supported kind of from your medical team while you're going through it generally um, well that was my experience at least but afterwards, when you're discharged, it's kind of like you're just let out into the world. Um, and I read kind of a lot of things. I listened to um, a lot of podcasts about cancer experience, etc. I kind of um, read a lot of different people's experience and a lot of people were like, oh, you eventually get used to the new normal. And I was just like, OK, so when is that? How long do I have to wait till I'm used to this new normal? And I would say it took me a really long time to the point where I would probably say it's only in this past year or so that I have 
kind of found myself and I think that is largely tied to the fact my hair's longer now um, I look more like myself um, I have a job I'm very comfortable in I feel like I know how to do my job um, and I think the kind of overall messages go at your own pace there's no right time to have a new normal you might feel okay quite soon it might take you a really long time there's no kind of right way and if you never reach a new normal that's fine like people tout a new normal as the be all and end all I would say I'm not in a new normal I would say I'm in a version of the old normal um for me but it's just different for everyone and if you need the support there is lots of things out there um be it medical um trained professionals um therapy friends family there's people out there who can help you and also in the last year you've obviously made five new friends that you could not possibly live without right yes yes um but and i i also think in the past year having something else to focus on in terms of kind of activism because i would say my activism started with um, raising more awareness of breast cancer in younger people, breast cancer in Chinese people, having a new focus for that. I think I still do that in terms of how I talk about it, but having a new focus kind of shifted my central point from still being the person who had cancer to now being the person who is campaigning for better representation of East and Southeast Asian people, you know, that kind of thing. So I've kind of shifted my focus of how people view me as well. Um, and it's not the first pe thing people know about me now. How about you, Viv? Have you got any anything that you'd say to anybody who's going through a similar thing, um, maybe a, a loved one or someone close to them who has cancer? Yeah, of course. And I mean, I think I'm very um, aware that the people that listen to this are predominantly East and Southeast Asian. And when I've talked about my experience in the past, I've had messages from people where their parents have gone through something similar or have passed on from cancer. And like one of my biggest regrets is not pushing more for clearer communication from um medical professionals like i think about how um people of color are treated within the nhs like we we know the stats when it comes to black women are like five times more likely to die from childbirth and like what are the stats when it comes to um ethnic minorities in the uk uh, when it comes to things like cancer treatment or wh whatever it may be and how often that might happen where people are misdiagnosed because they weren't taken seriously or they weren't able to describe their symptoms properly and they weren't they just weren't heard um, and it makes me quite scared to think about how often that must happen when I think about the level of um, English that my, my dad um, had he wasn't bad at English by all means but he could definitely express himself better in Chinese and I wish and I think that's one of the biggest motivators to in having a Chinese doctor initially in the U in the US. Um, and it was a very privileged thing for our family to be able to do. But when he continued his treatment in the NHS, um, I wish we sought out those translation services more. But then there's also a very big cultural barrier to that as well, because my parents didn't actually want to do that because they didn't want Chinese people knowing their business um, and they were worried about other people knowing and then it getting out into the community or whatever. Um, so 
I just I, I wish that in a way that I was there more for their appointments um and I wish that I sought out more resources for my parents um to help their journey more in terms of just communicating um and then I also off the back of that as well I do wish that I communicated more so with my entire family not just my dad in terms of how we were all feeling um my friend who comes from a family where her mum's a counsellor, her dad's a doctor, they talk a lot about this kind of stuff. They could talk, express this quite openly with each other. Whereas my family, we're shit with expressing how we feel about one another, how we feel about the situations at the best of times. And so we would all sweep it under the carpet. Like I remember when my dad was told that we had two months to live, me and my big sister and my mum, um, we're all there and then um, we just didn't talk about it and we just went to Nando's and just ate afterwards and we just literally didn't talk about it it was just like okay and I'm sure my mom and dad had like private discussions but in terms of like us all sitting down to talk about it I wouldn't say I would change it but I kind of wish I had just checked in more in terms of like how are you feeling dad rather than just not talking about it you know and not asking Mm. more questions but then it was also very strange because it was just hard on all of us and we didn't want to upset one another as well and I think that was one of the biggest reasons we were protecting one another um so it was a weird thing really of like just not talking (laughs) yeah I completely yeah I resonate quite a lot with the not talking thing because we didn't do that at all and again like we as a family have not communicated very well and an added layer of that was that like I'm pretty sure my dad wanted to protect my mum from it as well I mean as much as you can protect somebody when you have Mm. terminal cancer but really stressing the kind of positives all the time and it's really shit because he probably really needed someone to talk to um with whom he didn't have to be the protector and have to do the kind of shielding thing um Mm. so that that is a really big regret because I and quite uncharacteristically for me just reacted by not talking about it ever like (laughs) you know you think that finding out something like that would make you call your dad more or speak Mm. more just like I just wasn't really able to to deal Mm. with that so um, that would be a major regret. Yeah, I think as well. Um, I kind of went through something similar. Um, I, you know, a lot of the time I didn't want to talk about it, but sometimes I did want to have the conversations of, you know, I'd always grown up um, hearing, and I don't really know why we talked about this book before, but m- my dad's culture said that, you know, if your child dies, you can't go to their funeral. Um, because you shouldn't mm. see your child um, Jesus. dead, yeah. basically. Um, I remember I wanted to have the conversation. I wanted to be like, if I die, Dad, I want you to go to my funeral and just not being able to have that conversation because it was so far removed from what we would ever talk about. Um, oh and, and I think I have said it since, but if not, Dad, if you're listening to this, if I ever die before you, touch wood, hopefully, I don't, I mean, that's a weird thing to say, um, I would like <laughs> you to go to my funeral. And, you know, um, I, I do try and have conversations nowadays with friends and family about not necessarily death specifically, but kind of how you should prepare and what you can do um, in terms of kind of 
getting life insurance, critical illness cover, you know, if you have any kind of outgoings, um, even if you don't have outgoings, try and get them as soon as you can. Because, for example, now I can't get critical illness cover. Um, if I had critical illness cover before I was diagnosed, I'd have paid my mortgage off. It would have been great. Um, but I only had life insurance because I thought, what do I need critical illness cover for? I'm 24 at the time. Like, why do I need that? And now I really wish I had um, kind of looked into that more um, and kind of thought about those things and even kind of the planning of my funeral. Um, I've looked into that, getting a will, um, putting those things in place that kind of dictate how, if anything, touch wood. I mean, I really hope it doesn't, but if anything, touch wood was to happen to me. So other people don't have to think about it. And also I know that my wishes are being fulfilled. Yeah, that's definitely something that I would um, add as well, because I found out all of this the hard way. My dad, um, despite knowing that he had terminal cancer, didn't make any kind of preparations, which is, I think, yeah, I'm sure at the time it's quite a hard thing to bring up with your loved ones and you don't want them to have to deal with this kind of stuff on top of dealing with the fact that you have cancer but ultimately it makes life a lot harder for them after you're gone and so if you think about it from that respect that you're actually making life easier after the the, mm. the thing has happened then it, it might be easier to process because I had to I grew up a lot when my dad died because it, I um I had I now have quite a lot of financial responsibility because of that and one positive thing that's come out of it is that I am really upfront about stuff like this just making sure that people in my family know what to do if I die this is what's going to happen I think my mum you know is is being upfront about it as well is you know putting putting aside some money to cover these costs because that's stuff that you don't think about and funerals are really expensive they're also mm-hmm. really complicated to organize if you don't have any of the information so it might seem really morbid like planning out the details but like the more that you do it the easier it is for the people you love and I mean I've I, I might have gone a bit too far in the wrong direction I even have told several people what song I want to play at my funeral but I do think it's important that we normalize these conversations because it's never fun to think about people you love dying or to think about you dying but it's just so much worse not doing it mm. yeah 100% my mum's been telling me to do my life insurance for God knows how long, and life everything insurance else. and critical illness cover. And please, critical. Okay, okay. You know what? I'm not. I'm not allowed to have. I'm not allowed. Um, well, not allowed. I mean, I could, but it's like ridiculous because I live in Africa. Like insurance policies, mm. and like, along with loads of other policies, are just so incredibly complicated that you mention the word Africa, and they're like, "Oh no, you're basically living in a death trap." <laughs> can't ensure you <laughs> it's so racist it's so awful anyway um I think that brings us to the end of the podcast I am so grateful to both of you for sharing your experiences today I'm really just yeah very kind of humbled and and happy to have been able to listen to you both talk it's not something that we you know, we talk about a lot of stuff, but we never dedicated a whole hour just talking about mm. this particular thing. So, yeah, thank you both for sharing. I think it's going to be a really um, 
a really big topic that will resonate with quite a lot of people because cancer is one of those things that impacts it's everybody everybody Mm -hmm. has been impacted by cancer in some way like I just don't know anybody who doesn't know someone um, who's had cancer so yeah thank you very much we will link the some resources and anything that we've mentioned in the podcast we'll link them all in the show notes as always please let us know what you think um you can follow us on instagram at bcnbesea.n and twitter at besea underscore n this was but where are you from a podcast by bcn britain's east and southeast asian network if you have appreciated what you've heard today we would love it if you could sling us some dollar at our coffee page that's ko-fi.com forward slash bcn and finally, if you haven't already done it, please sign our petition to have East and Southeast Asian Heritage Month recognised in the UK. Details are on our socials or on our website. Bill and Charlie, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. And I look forward to catching up with you both next time. I can't believe you. we got through that whole yeah, thing please. without crying. <laughs> I know. Can people send, actually send us money? Because like we just fucking up- offloaded our emotional trauma. I can't believe none of us cried. No one used the safe word. I I did shed a tear, but I didn't cry. Oh, Um, I saw you wipe your eye. (laughs) I don't even know what it was because it wasn't a particularly emotional moment, but it's fine. I got through it and it's done. I don't know that anything I said made sense though, but good luck with that, Izzy. It is. Right.